1: Hello and welcome to this special budget edition of the Prospect podcast, where as usual we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter. And today I'm delighted to be joined by two excellent guests, Alfie Sterling, Chief Economist at the New Economics Foundation, and Lara Spirit, the Red Box reporter at The Times, to talk about the budget that Jeremy Hunt has just announced this lunchtime. We speak on Wednesday, it's five past two, so we've just seen the budget and we've seen the, the response from Keir Starmer. Lara, do you want to begin by just telling us what the highlights for you were?
0: So I think most people would agree that about four areas of highlights. We had a significant announcement on the extension of the energy price guarantee, support with energy Bills. That was a big intervention from Jeremy Hunt today. We also had major announcements on uh, disability benefits, and of course, much trailed, but but actually, bolder than we were expecting on childcare. And then, in addition to that, I think Jeremy Hunt very keen uh, to emphasise that he wanted to uh, wanted to make sure this budget had some big message on growth. So there was a, a big pledge on full expensing as well, that I think we'll probably uh, speak about a bit. But that was definitely one of the bolder measures uh, in Hunt's and budget And Alfie, today. what
1: caught your eye? And I mean, it's all more or less been pre-announced hadn't it apart from the the surprise on the the complete ab- abolition of lifetime allowance but but nevertheless what, what what were your standouts
2: that's right that um the increase in that allowance or well, the abolishment of that allowance was a bigger move than we were previously expecting but but by and large everything was broadly known about i mean look i think i think it's worth stepping back um actually and just looking at you know the country as it stands today that stands going into that budget, which is the deepest cost of living crisis, the biggest hit to living standards on modern records, and I think if anything now is not the time to do a sort of you know copy and paste job on uh, previous, recent, but also policy you know over the last decade. But by and large, that is what we got. You know, we had another round of um, support um, for families with the cost of living crisis. In this case, a three-month extension to the energy price guarantee, but. As with have previously, you know, it did have that, that feeling of being a little too little and too late, poorly targeted. You know, we know energy bills are going to be elevated now for two years. This three-month extension um, at £2,500 for a typical household is not going to make a big difference. We had a similar emphasis to what we've had over the last 10 years in terms of getting people into work. But again, with probably too little attention on the type and quality of work that people are supposed to be moving back into you know, we had, we had the tax changes, um, whether that was the changes on, on pension uh, tax, on the changes on, on, um, uh, on corporation uh, relief on investment. But again, you know, we've seen these sorts of changes before. And by and large, they do benefit the highest earners. And they do tend to subsidise corporate investment that was going to happen anyway. So what econ- economists call a deadweight loss. And then I think the final thing is, you know, in view of essentially what is climate catastrophe – Basically, not just the UK, but obviously the world, you know, the world globally, we had the 13th year in a row of a freeze in fuel duty, which is a subsidy, again, to higher income households um, disproportionately, and is, you know, subsidising a polluting form of transport. So I think when you step back and look at the challenges we're facing, it was a broadly inadequate budget, and it was a repeat of much of what we've seen over recent years.
1: Well, lots to go out there. Why don't we begin with the growth forecasts? Because I think they maybe that was the other surprise in the budget, that they were better than uh, had been pre-announced. Though there is a huge gulf between what the, the Chancellor was saying today and what the Bank of England is saying. I don't know, Alfie, if you can reconcile that. So, for instance, the Chancellor was saying 1.8, 2.5, whereas the Bank of England is was saying minus 0.3 and 0.4. they They're wildly different assumptions about how the economy is going to grow between now and the the next election.
2: Yeah, that's right, and it's conspicuous the gap in forecast. We've had that now for six to nine months. The OBR being obviously much more optimistic at the moment. You know, I think it does feel likely that the OBR may be closer to the money than the Bank of England. But I think that the two, one of the reasons for that is being slightly later. Obviously, they've had a few more weeks of data to build that forecast out from. They've also got the benefit of incorporating the government's policies, which, whether they over are right or wrong, they bring in an assumption of what the effect of that will be, which will change their estimate relative to the Bank of England, who aren't able to incorporate the effects of those policies. Um, but, you know, again, this sort of tells us two things, I think. One is that when you've got this sort of volatility in forecasts, it's really problematic for policy planning. Because in the end, what's governing these sorts of moments, these budgets, in terms of the the amount of room or the envelope that government has to spend is the so-called fiscal rules. And they are a function of, obviously, the targets government set itself, but also these forecasts. With the forecasts up or down, that will hugely impact how much uh, government has to spend. So if you've got this sort of volatility and disagreement in forecasts, um, it doesn't bode well for uh, effective long-term planning. Um, You know, it was only six months ago that we had, um, you know, sort of a famine, if you like, in the public finances uh, with the need for further cuts and restraint. Six months on, we've got um, a sort of almost a feast with the amount of money that the Chancellor is now playing with certainly in the near term. And again, as you say, this big disagreement between the Bank of England and OBR. And and the second thing, I think, though, is that it comes back to the point I was making earlier, which is that irrespective of where the forecasters are putting GDP, in fact, irrespective of where the, the ONS are saying GDP was a couple of months ago... People at the moment are feeling uh, real hardship in terms of the impact on their living standards, um, and so we need to be very careful in how we interpret or, in fact, um, um, avoid over-interpreting headline GDP numbers when the distributional effects or the effects on everyday standard of living might look quite different.
1: L- Lara, uh, Alfie mentioned the, the, the 6 billion um Pound cut in in fuel duties uh, um he placed that in a green context but there's another way of looking at it which which um Paul Jones of the IFS um drew attention to which is here here's a government that's saying it has no money to be paying any of the striking public sector workers and yet they they have got six billion pounds to spare in terms of fuel duties do you think people are going to read it that way
0: it's interesting. I think the government will have made the wager that this uh, this feudal tea measure will be popular and in line with public opinion, Jeremy Hunt making quite a clear case at Dispatch Box that he thought it would save the average driver £100 a year. Uh, and there's been a lot of pressure in the press and elsewhere for uh, for this to be extended. So I think when you have these budgets, you will always, of course, it's obvious to point out, have, uh, you know, these questions of if not uh, if not there, then why here? But certainly it seems to be the case that, you know, people and, uh, and ministers and MPs going to Jeremy Hunt in recent days and weeks and making the case for their own proposed and favoured measures who are getting, uh, you know, really strong rebuffs from him. We've heard things along the lines of just our debt bill is, is so high that it's it's just impossible, uh, kind of point blank no, on a number of these, of these measures. But I think that largely uh, MPs, especially Tory MPs, won't be particularly perturbed with the extension of this. And I think that it's unlikely that you'll see voters be angry with, with the fuel duty extension either. But I do think you're right that that headline figure of £6 billion to pay for this in a context of, and with a backdrop of public sector striking workers, I think that just adds more fuel to the argument that it's not that the government can't afford it, but that the government is rather choosing not to. And I think that will probably feature in the debates very strongly, as you suggest, in the coming weeks and months, should these strikes continue.
1: Alfie, this decision to abolish the lifetime uh, cap on pension allowances... I mean, that, that will be portrayed as an yet another tax break for the rich. Why do you think he's gone so far on that? I mean, he, he it was pre-announced that he would limit it to, to 1.8 million, but to abolish it altogether affects a relatively small number of very highly paid workers. One can see the rationale of it in the NHS, but, but why, what's the thinking there, do you think?
2: that's right and it is a bit of a head scratcher actually and and as you say it was sort of briefed as though it's there to fit a particular problem which is with consultant highly paid uh, doctors but it is a policy that affects the population at large and we think that um, you know it will really benefit you know eight ten thousand of the highest income um, individuals each year Um, you know it It's hard to say. I mean, you know, does it appeal to that sort of aspirational tendency of the British voter? I don't know. I mean, we we see a lot of these sorts of over the years. You know, ISA limits are another example. There are very few people that can that have twenty thousand pounds a year available to put into their ISA, and yet the government have obviously, you know, only a few years ago the government increased the ISA limit right up to twenty thousand. So it does seem to follow a similar logic. These sorts of measures, I think. You know, tap into this idea, this divide around deserving, undeserving, and high income work and aspiration, I think. And perhaps that's what they're banking on. But then again, you know, most of the polling on this doesn't suggest it's going to move the poll significantly. And the, the government certainly need um, significant movement if they're going to make up the ground they need in the next 12 months.
1: Nara, the, the, the childcare measure was um, more extensive than I think it was pre briefed. And, and again, if you go to the IFS, they're saying this is really a big extension of the welfare state. What was your reaction to the the ambition there and the, uh, the, the, the sheer amounts of people who will benefit from this?
0: Yeah, so I think it's fair to say that this is definitely one of the most ambitious measures in the budget, but also one of the most expected too, because we've seen Uh, a huge amount of support placed on uh, Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak uh, regarding childcare. And actually from all quarters, uh, really, we've seen Labour and Pat McFadden uh, has been keen to point this out. Labour have been pushing hard uh, on this for quite some time, saying that, uh, you know, childcare is one of the key drivers of uh, of restarting uh, and kickstarting growth uh, in the UK economy. But not just that, actually, among a very important... Uh, Wing for Rishi Sunak in his party. Some of those Trussites and some of the more discontented Conservative MPs since Rishi Sunak has taken over, people like Simon Clark, people like Kit Morehouse, who were on the cabinet benches uh, in that brief tenureship of uh, Liz Truss, who had argued that childcare, which of course is one of uh, Truss's own uh, kind of favoured. Uh, areas of policy in her kind of short-lived growth <laughs> agenda, uh, they have been quite uh, out, kind of loudly spoken about the fact that this is something that Rishi Sunak really needed to address and soon. And if you watch Prime Minister's Questions, not today, but in uh, previous weeks since Rishi Sunak took over, uh, most weeks you'd see comments on uh, childcare and the lack of government support uh, and kind of cases, not just that it was uh, it was unjust and fell particularly hard uh, on on women, but also that uh, it was a significant barrier to uh, the government's supposed growth priority. So uh, I think it's unsurprising given that uh, you've got pressure not just from his backbenchers but also across the House that we saw something on this. But you're right to point out that this goes further uh, than many had expected. So we had seen hints that there was going to be something on childcare and most people expected that there uh, would be. But the fact that it has gone so uh, far in providing that uh, free childcare for those age one and two, is really quite uh, astonishing and and, and, uh, slightly older. But one of the, I think, interesting things that you'll see in this announcement in the next few days will be pressure on Rishi Sinek as to why this is uh, not coming in until September 2025. Uh, And I do think that the government needs to be careful in their their communication of this, because I'm not entirely sure that that came across uh, particularly clearly in the announcement when Hunt was at the dispatch box today. But I do think many parents... Uh, of young children or future parents of young children who would be watching that announcement might be uh, you know, unpleasantly surprised when they learn that they might not potentially be uh, eligible for it for quite some time. So that will be an interesting communications challenge for the government. But you're right that uh, this childcare, if you watch uh, Labour shadow ministers on the broadcast rounds today, very, very keen to stress that this was something that Labour was prioritising. And indeed, Keir Starmer, when he stood up there uh, after Jeremy Hunt finished speaking, said also that they'd been pushing for this for quite some time. So you'll see a battle uh, between both parties to try and uh, claim the mantle on this one. But I think, you know, Jeremy Sunak uh, out in front of and ahead of uh, what many expected in offering much more extensive support for uh, parents of young children than we expected.
1: How did the politics of it strike you, Alfie? I mean, a, a year ago, people were expecting uh, the government to come up with money for social care. That was that was the, the priority, the political priority there. But that, that seems to have been put on the back burner now in order to push through child care.
2: Yeah, that's right. And you know, the challenge politically of childcare has always been that it um that it appealed perhaps to a quite a narrow selection of of the electorate in terms of, you know, current parents. I think the I think, you know, both uh, Labour and the Conservatives have taken the taken made the calculation that actually in the end it there's enough there in terms of um you know, being attractive to future parents, uh, if you can package it into further reforms, especially in Labour's case for uh, primary school, and we've had the announcements around additional uh, funding for um, uh, for, uh, for activities outside of school. You can speak to a wider part of the electorate, but I think that's part of the move. But look, stepping back on on the policy, rather than the than the politics, perhaps countries you know across rich nations tend to see childcare policy as a as a trade off between whether you are trying to support parents back to work, and therefore you're really focusing on the affordability and accessibility of childcare, or whether you're really focusing on equalising early years experience, trying to reduce child uh, gaps in child educational attainment. And the UK has almost always been a bit of a laughing stock in terms of essentially failing on both at the same time and having a system that doesn't achieve either. It's possible now we are seeing a government choose. Um, and it does look like we've got this you know this big expansion in entitlement once it comes in. And Laura's quite right that this delay is perhaps one of the biggest things we've actually heard on the day is that it's coming in a bit slower than as many people assumed. But it does look like this government's chosen which side of the trade-off they want to be. And that does mean – it raises the question to what extent is the sector ready to deliver this and what will the quality of that care be, uh, particularly in a sector that has too few workers and is underfunded, where where the the, the companies are underfunded, the providers are underfunded, and the workers are underpaid. Um, And I think that will be the next uh, stage of this debate, uh, which could come sooner than than the government's currently expecting.
1: After the break we'll hear more from Lara and Alfie on what the budget means for our politics. If you enjoy our podcasts and would like to consume more of our journalism, we'd encourage you to subscribe. A subscription unlocks full access to prospect content across newsletters, web, app, and print. And right now a subscription to Prospect costs as little as one pound per month. Visit Prospect Magazine or one word dot and please subscribe now. I was particularly caught by um Jeremy Hunt's praise for um, Michael Heseltine which um uh, again a year ago would not have happened and I think Michael Heseltine still has the Tory whip withdrawn from him in the house of lords but but he seems to be welcomed back into the fold did you did you think the measures sounded ambitious enough and coherent enough
0: I mean this is a very uh, interesting point because we had heard quite a bit about how the two uh, Andy's Andy Street and Andy Burnham, uh, the respective mayors would be given greater powers uh, as part of this budget, uh, in line with the uh, with the levelling up agenda, and that uh, you know greater devolution, especially to uh, these uh, mayors that are seen as among the most successful, was a core uh, kind of aim of Michael Gove, the levelling up secretary, and that this would be seen as a key victory uh, of his. But these twelve new investment zones uh, that were announced today seen slightly as a pared back version. Uh, of some of, uh, you know, Liz Truss's uh, kind of main aims around these uh, similar policies when she had her short-lived premiership before. It will be interesting to see whether or not people think it will be a kind of significant uh, a significant improvement in the levelling up agenda. And indeed, Keir Starmer, when he stood up and spoke, said that uh, you know devolution had been something that the Labour Party had long uh, long kind of supported. And indeed, it, just before Christmas, we see old Gord Brown, the former Labour Prime Minister, uh, announce his kind of release, his constitutional report, which had uh, much the same ambitions and indeed uh, kind of pinpointed in the political inequalities of the country uh, the need for greater devolution and that kind of centralisation creep that we've seen in British politics for some time And one of those uh, real... Uh, kind of feature to the British economy that indeed does make us rather unique. So uh, this is one of the kind of key aims to to uh, to boost that. And indeed, we've heard quite a lot for quite a long time about measures like clusters that we would see, uh, and the locations not particularly surprising. There were cheers in uh, the Commons when we heard that there would uh, definitely be one in uh, in Scotland, one in Wales, one in Northern Ireland. Uh, it seems that some of the uh, finer details of that and the, uh, how the locations will be chosen are still being uh, ironed out. But it's uh, it's interesting as you say to hear uh, Heseltine uh, men- uh, mentioned and also to hear the kind of echo of past regenerations in the form of the Albert Dock in Liverpool and also, of course, Canary Wharf. So uh, very uh, interesting, those investment zones north northern Birmingham as part of the, uh, the levelling up drive. And it'll be interesting to see uh, whether kind of Ben Houshen and, uh, and Simon Clark, that kind of duo, side duo, uh, come out in uh, support of this. Uh, too, it's, but some of the uh, kind of less contented, I think it's fair to say, conservative MPs uh, with Rishi Sunak's government have been uh, banging on this drum for quite some time. So whether or not this makes a meaningful impact, uh, it's it's kind of remains to be seen. It'd be interesting uh, reading back the Leveling Up white paper uh, from last year, which I uh, which I did uh, recently. There was uh, you know quite a fine admission that actually the sums needed if we're going to take investment zones seriously definitely run into the higher billions. Uh, Than, for example, we're seeing here, which is these investment zones are benefiting from uh, from eighty million pounds in tax release and uh, business retentions and other government support. Now, that's a lot of money, obviously, but is it the kind of transformative sums that we know from uh, from the literature actually would constitute uh, what the government has defined as uh, as levelling up? Before, I'm not necessarily so sure, but I think it speaks to uh, the kind of this wider point about whether or not Rishi Sunak has redefined levelling up since he's uh, since he's come in, and whether or not it does necessarily mean what it meant. Before it seems under Rishi Sunak that uh, it's taken a more kind of investment zone uh, focus than it might have other measures under uh, you know his predecessors. But I think interesting to see, and I'm sure it will get, I uh, definitely sure that it will get kind of you know positive support from those on the Conservative benches. I
1: say a positive step, but but potentially just not enough.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. I think the order of magnitude that Laura points out is is the key um, the key point. You know, up to ten billion in a couple of years will be foregone in terms of the full expensing on, on corporation tax. Uh, you know, that's, tens, that's one zero ten billion 10 uh, billion pounds, um, whereas we're talking about uh, tens and hundreds of millions here on what, you know, is also supposed to be a defining flagship policy agenda for government. Um, and I think what drives this is that at the moment what we're seeing is rhetoric that tries to describe um, an agenda that speaks to the whole country but policies to match that are very few and far between in terms of the areas they're actually going to affect. You know, we've got pretty local uh, small number of these investment zones. We know that devolution is currently being spearheaded where there are metro mayors and even just where there are particular metro mayors ahead of others. Large swathes of the country miss out on both, and that's where I think we've got that lack of scale um, in policy to match the rhetoric.
1: Now, a question on um, climate change and the measures there carbon capture and storage and nuclear power are those the right priorities and um what 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 didn't we hear about there
0: yeah it's a uh it's an interesting question you're right 20 billion pounds of support for carbon capture G announced in there, so that part of that kind of raft of energy announcements uh that we that we saw now i think expected to Particularly the northeast and northwest uh, of England and in North Wales, uh, that's what we've been told. Uh, we've been told that they'll capture carbon dioxide emissions from plants uh, and from factories, and then they'll be disposed under the sea. So uh, I think not necessarily expected today, but uh, was one of the main uh, points that Jeremy Hunt wanted to uh, highlight this morning in his uh, in his in his kind of pre-budget meeting with the cabinet. Uh, so very clear that they wanted to uh, make sure that this was a big centrepiece uh, of the government today. Uh, but there was also a mention of uh, well, of more nuclear power and a kind of admission from Jeremy that uh, Britain needed uh, more of that. He called it a critical source of cheap and uh, reliable energy. Uh, and he said that investing will be classified as, reclassified as sustainable and there'll be a consultation with a kind of new great British nuclear uh, body that we've told that will be launched to help bring down uh, those costs uh, and, and kind of improve supply. And that was uh, met with, with support from the House uh, and I think nuclear has become, we've seen, uh Boris Johnson uh you know without any irony whatsoever <laughs> uh kind of uh, criticizing the lack of uh, of progress on the uh, on on nuclear and making sure that it's uh, it's important that kind of his promises on nuclear are upheld going forward so again in some level unsurprising this was a budget that was just as responsive to uh, to what we've seen in uh, in the wider economy uh than it was to its MPs uh so I think unsurprising in that respect that uh we saw the focus today with regard to energy being in some way on nuclear but also as as you say on carbon capture technology there will be uh, as you mentioned with the fuel duty conversation earlier there will be i'm sure uh, a wider conversation around whether or not this is as uh, as ambitious on climate as people had been hoping uh, of course the kind of rapid changes and successions of these uh, of these conservative prime ministers and administrations has meant that uh, the kind of prolonged focus on these longer term projects and the climate agenda is certainly one of them uh, has slightly perhaps to some critics fallen by the wayside we've certainly seen uh, that in the conversation even around you know whether the prime ministers would be attending the COP summit uh, toward the end of last year that was a that was a kind of big debate that people had and uh, and I think it speaks to the kind of wider challenges that we face when you have a quick succession of, uh, of governments and kind of being able to uh, explain and provide a vision for what your kind of longer term projects and goals are and a kind of just one final example of that is obviously the recent uh, reorganization of, uh, of energy departments and uh, Grant Chaps is kind of remodeled Remodeled Net Zero Department with the kind of quite slightly confusing, uh, confusing acronym. So uh, those, I think, speak to the fact that this is probably going to be an ongoing conversation uh, on energy. And I think it'd be unsurprising if you didn't see
1: people asking for what uh... the aspirations and challenges of being young now. Or have you have you have you given up on politics?
0: Then? Um, I think I'm definitely. Well, I'm young, but I'm not young enough to understand uh, how short-termist politics can be. And I think um, I kind of had lost hope in a in a more long-termist understanding of uh, of politics quite some time ago. I understand that the uh, incentive structure around British electoral politics in particular means that it would be very, uh, very out of convention were, I, were we to have seen uh, anything like that, um, you know, in any of the governments of uh, the last few decades even. So I think that just speaks to, I think, the wider problems in our political structures and being able to Uh, you know, design, governments, policies, anything like a politics, which is responsive to thinking about what the world will look like decades from now.
1: So cynical, so young. Um, Alfie, finally, um, this the tonally, this was very different from the last time Jeremy Hunt was on his feet. Then he was, it was all sort of um, unpleasant medicines to correct the situation we were in. He was much more upbeat today. But I suppose the ultimate question is the one that Keir Starmer posed is whether at the end of it you feel better off or not better off, and and
2: what's your answer to that? Well, I think Keir Starmer's right. I think that in the end, um, it's not enough to talk about the economy, it's not enough to talk about things like GDP and inflation if what people are feeling uh, day to day is pain, and too many people are still feeling that. And and that is, you know, until something is done to address that. that's going to become the dividing line. That's going to become the key focus for the general election. And that was almost how I started. I think the conversation uh, in I think one of my first answers to the podcast that it's that it's that underlying experience of the economy. It's going to be crucial um, now. I think it, you know it also this, this, the pivot from mm-hmm. from Jerry Hunt. I think reflects two things. One is the thing I mentioned earlier, which is this this roller coaster in the forecasts, which sort of suddenly are saying you know feast famine, no feast famine, uh, which is problematic anyway. But also just the closer we get to a general election, the limited space for the Chancellor to be to be negative. You know, he's got to switch to a positive outlook at some point to give themselves a run road into a general election. I think that's what we start to see today as well. One thing I would just say though on this on this point around yeah you know, that you mentioned um the restraint we saw six months ago and the and the cuts to spending that were announced. Um We've still got in the OBR forecast this quite unusual feature where inflation, which obviously right now, as everyone knows, is highly elevated, dropping down close towards 2% over the next 12 months, but then continuing to drop after that and falling well below, actually, the Bank of England's 2% target. And what that means is that the current spending settlements that have been given to departments to spend on public services will, um, will erode in real terms if inflation actually settles at 2%. Which is what most people think will happen once the Bank of England um intervenes um to maintain its 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 mandate. So that's all quite a sort of technical point about the economy, but the, but the bottom line is there could be a further twenty billion in cuts that haven't yet been announced, haven't yet been acknowledged by government, and largely unreported in the media that will come to bite on public service spending in the coming years, uh, depending on where inflation goes.
1: Lara, we all know that in the days after a budget, things often unravel and things that look very rosy on the day look less rosy. But your your overall reaction to the question about whether people at the end of this are going to feel better off and as, as comparatively cheery as Jeremy Hunt seemed today?
0: I think if you look at what the OBR has said today, it's quite difficult to reach that conclusion. You know, the um, predictions on living standards looking like they'll still fall to levels uh, not seen since the 1950s. So, uh, very difficult to see uh, any way in which that leads people to be feeling especially uh, positive. Of course, there were the kind of you know great Brexit beer announcements that we saw that uh, you know people, I'm sure Jeremy Hunt will be hoping, finds its way uh, positively into the papers to provide some source of optimism tomorrow. But I think. Uh, you know, fair to say, alongside these uh, these kind of wider measures, it's, it's difficult to see uh, how that happens. And interesting, uh, you know, we'll see uh, other parties, Labour and uh, the Lib Dems chief among them, making the case that even on the energy price guarantee, for example, that £400 pounds of support falling off, you know, uh, that people will still be seeing their, uh, you know, their energy bills rising in a considerable way. And it will still be very difficult to shield people from uh, what, is, uh, what is not, you know, a, a, a particularly positive economic outlook by any respects, which, of course, Alfie just, uh, explained. So I think, you know, difficult to see how that happens. But compared to previous uh, big fiscal events, most notably, obviously, the, disar- the you know, disastrous uh, mini budget that we saw uh, during this Truss's short-lived time as Prime Minister, I think it's unlikely that you'll see anything like a disastrous unravelling in that respect. And, uh, you know, this is, uh, a, a, as we've seen, I think, in some of the reporting before, it's, uh, it's uh, a major budget and a major fiscal event, but with some with some very bold Uh, And consequential and sizable announcements in it. But I think it's unlikely that you're going to see anything like the major rattling uh, that we've necessarily seen before. One interesting thing, I think, uh, will be how people, as you say, have spoken about respond to childcare and also to the news about how and when it will be uh, coming in. And I think that particular announcement is one of the more interesting examples of what we always see around budgets as well, which is the kind of uh, consequent conversations around fairness and and, and how the budget applies to different people at uh, different times. And interesting that, uh, you've already seen Labour MPs talking about that uh, pensions announcement as benefiting, uh, you know, by definition, among the most well-off in, in the country. And uh, it will be a big battle. I think the Conservatives having a conversation about why they think that is uh, so important in order to drive people back to work and doesn't look like it's in some way a sort of handout. And I'm not saying it will be read in any anything like the same way as the 45p cut that we saw uh, last year that, of course, had to be uh, dramatically and embarrassingly reversed by uh, by quasi-quotting. Uh, after going out announced by quite a Crossing and, and this trust, so but I do think that uh, you know there are measures in that budget that are politically delicate, uh, and there are measures that the communications will need to be handled particularly well around. And I think those conversations will be very interesting to watch. It's always hard to predict, of course, uh, you know what pe- what uh, people and papers and and, and uh, commentators latch onto by way of uh, by way of criticism uh, and and conversation around this, but. Uh, I do think, you know, particularly conversations around that big pension announcement that you uh, mentioned, I think will be among the most interesting to watch. And uh, and but to your wider point about whether or not people feel better off the OBR saying that they won't. So <laughs> we'll just have to wait and see.
1: Well, thanks so much to Laura and Alfie for this piece of budget analysis. If you enjoy this podcast, then please go and buy a copy of Prospect magazine, which has got great pieces on Iraq, on um, in, in Pakistan's former Prime Minister Imran Khan a very good piece by Martin Percy on why the forthcoming coronation could be less than a a brilliant result for the Church of England, and the former Permanent Secretary of the Home Office, David Normington, writing about immigration. Goodbye, and listen out for a new episode of the Prospect podcast next week. And while you're here, why not subscribe to something slightly different? (laughs) Prospect Lives is a monthly series of audio diary entries from our family of seven writers, including Sheila Hancock, Alice Goodman and Mike Brearley, the former England cricket captain. They will sometimes make you laugh, sometimes they can make you even cry, but they give you a snapshot of the lives of people who live differently to you and me. Just search Prospect Lives, wherever you get your podcasts, or click on the link in the show notes of this episode.